1: But for Dara Khosrowshahi, who came over 12 days ago from the travel giant Expedia, turning around the world's most valuable and most troubled private technology company, the work is only just beginning. Helpfully for him, the company already has a running start, thanks to this week's guest on Danny in the Valley. Francis Fry, a renowned company doctor and Harvard Business School professor, is here. Francis is the person you call if your company is in trouble. And three months ago, she answered that call from Uber. The company, of course, has had a terrible year. One for the books, really. It has been rocked by sexual harassment scandals that led to the dramatic ousting of former CEO Travis Kalanick. It's been plagued by a culture that has been called toxic by its investors and employees. It has strained relations with its drivers and regulators, and despite Shahi's appointment, remains largely leaderless, still missing a CFO, COO, President, General Counsel, Chairman, Head of Engineering, amongst other positions, after an exodus of executives in the recent months. For a company with 15,000 employees and 1.5 million drivers in 70 countries, there has never really been a situation quite like it. And into that breach stepped Fry. Now, we, we recorded this interview just a few days before Khosr Shahi was appointed, but actually it makes the conversation even more interesting because it gives a clear sense of where the company is today, what Kozer Shahi is walking into how Fry has been trying to change it, and whether there is any hope that this Uber super tanker, if I can mix my metaphors, can be turned around. Anyhow, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. So, without further ado, here's Francis.
2: I didn't think I would ever leave Harvard and go join an organization. So I was quite surprised when I got here, and I just couldn't—I couldn't walk away. Like, again, the mission of the company, the purpose of the company, the employees, um, the riders, the drivers. My mother is a rider that of um, it's going to like give her, it gives her liberty to give up her car, which she was panicked about doing before because of the isolation and the lack of. Uh, Independence she would have. And I have, like, countless stories from around the world about this.
1: What have you found? Have you been surprised by what you found when you kind of walk through the doors?
2: Yeah, so I'll tell you the, the most surprising thing to me was that I didn't find any novel challenges. So said different You've seen all this. You've Every seen all of this of before. Every one of them. Now, the context is totally novel. I was expecting to see novel challenges, too. But the context of, I mean... I'm not sure there are any peers for the growth that it's experienced or very very few peers for the growth it's experienced and that growth in the creation of an industry like and so the context super novel but the challenges every single one of them I've seen in other organizations and have successfully advised other organizations in overcoming.
1: So what are the, some of the things that you have seen before that you see here that yeah. you need to so deal I with. Think,
2: so one of the things, in order to grow as fast as we did, there were a lot of silos in the organization. And I'm sure you you know, we hear all the time that organizations have silos that has nothing on the silos that we had here. Like it was enormously siloed.
1: Because there was a lot of fiefdoms and that helped yeah. them grow, right?
2: Exactly right.
1: If you're a country manager, you managed your country.
2: And that's wonderful for growth, but it atrophies the notion of working as a team. So the country manager would be great within the silo, but maybe the country manager didn't have to interact with other parts of the organization. And so coming here, I found all of these great leaders, but they were A plus B plus C. And so perhaps my job is to help facilitate A times B times C. Like So to bring the the team into leadership was the first one. Certainly we've seen challenges of organizations needing to operate outside of silos. And so... Maybe it was a more extreme example of a rel- of a relatively common problem. I think that the while there's great strategic thinkers all throughout Uber, there wasn't a common understanding of strategy. So the articulation... What do you mean? So the, if you went and asked 15 people what Uber's strategy was, I'm not sure you would get a consistent answer from all 15. And I think that's also a manifestation of the growth. So we went from ride-sharing in San Francisco to an international organization in ride sharing and in EATS and in looking at other aspects of the future. In
1: 70 countries.
2: Yeah, like super quickly. And so uh, people's understanding of the strategy didn't evolve with that. So helping everyone understand it, have a shared understanding of the strategy so that we're all rowing in the same direction. So if you're in silos, your silo rows in the same direction, but not necessarily across. So again, a common problem Is there a well-understood articulation of the strategy in the 15,000 employees that are walking around? Maybe again, a more extreme version of it here. And then, you know, there's always new managers that need to be trained. Because of the growth, the number of new managers, so the number of employees that were first time managers and that are first time managers is astounding. Now, if you got given it as a math problem, you'd say, oh, well, of course, with the growth, that's what happens. But that was also surprising.
1: So is it kind of like a management by millennials?
2: Well, regardless of age, it's a management by people who don't have managerial experience. And now, um, like from the Harvard Business School, I believe in my heart and soul that management and leadership can be taught. (laughs) So not a novel problem um but the context super novel that of the 3000 managers a startlingly high percentage were first time
1: managers and was there any formal training bef- before that in, I think in place?
2: I, so I think there was but not enough to keep up with the growth and not as foundational and as aspirational as it needed to be and this is where i think the leadership part of of management comes in um like the real notion that leadership is a result of making others better like and how do you do that and so teaching folks how to do that is a pleasure and a joy they the employees here and i think i've trained i don't know 10,000 of the 15,000 so far it's, it um, literally, it literally like literally cl- kind of like
1: class by class so to speak and
2: and folks just like are so appreciative and so yearning of it and i'm going to roll out another curriculum this fall and like the demand is o- is overwhelming so we're going to do it for managers but then the individual contributors, of which there are four times as many as managers, are saying, well, why, why are you doing a curriculum only for managers? And in my heart, if someone wants education, I will <laughs> offer education. So now we're coming so if up with So you kind of customized...
1: recreated a Harvard Business School class inside Uber.
2: Yes, but completely customized for Uber's context because it is a, quite a novel context. So it would be as if there was a Harvard, Harvard Business School class for hyper-growth companies yeah that's what I'm I'm trying that's what I'm trying to do
1: so there's lots to talk about here but I thought a way to frame it uh, a bit dramatically is to read from something that was on posted on medium back in February by by a, a former anonymous female engineer I was not prepared to deal with the abuse and dehumanizing treatment I received from my supervisors and colleagues at Uber Uber finally broke me by destroying my dignity as a human being and reduced my aspirations by attaching their worth to a female reproductive organ, like they did to Susan, Susan Fowler. Uber killed a part of me that was most precious. So that's quite dramatic.
2: It's enormously dramatic and terribly, terribly sad.
1: So when you walk into an organization that, you know, where somebody has that experience, where do you start?
2: Um... Where do you start? Because I, um, first of all, I think you start with just honoring and understanding what was said. Honor sounds like a crazy word for it, but just like getting in touch with how terrible that is and then understand what were the conditions that permitted that to occur and relentlessly going after those conditions so that they not only stop the valley, but also uh, create the conditions for people to thrive so not only like preventing the damage but then creating the conditions for people to thrive and the only way i know how to do that is by systematically understanding the context that permitted it and and going out and addressing it
1: and talking about culture how does that fit into all of this? because we i mean have you had much experience with startups before
2: yeah so in terms of advising i've always been on advisory boards of and and have helped um, many of the large tech companies today, I helped when they were smaller. It's super hard to refer to Uber as a startup. It's not like any other startup I had. From <laughs> like, I've been at startups that like were maybe more capital S and capital U. Um, right. This this feels like, <laughs> I mean, it's fifteen thousand employees when I got here.
1: But I guess about my my co- so my question yeah. is around culture. It's set and often set very early, and that's the connective tissue. So when you go from ten guys or guys and girls. Sitting in a garage or in a one office, everybody understands that, and that permeates as yeah. things get bigger and harder to manage. Yeah, and so, it seems like somewhere along that trajectory, things so, went horribly awry.
2: Well, yeah, so I think cultures need to adapt. It's, I don't, I can't think of an, any organization that poured liquid cement on its culture at its dawn, and then that was it. Uh, so I think cultures have to adapt, and I think to your point, up until uh, what you read from. There hadn't been enough explicit nourishing and design of the culture. I think the culture simply was what it was and what it what it grew to be. And that was an enormous wake-up call. And the culture is no longer simply organic. Like the work that Leanne is doing, who's the head of our HR, and she started this well before I got here, is enormously, like, design centric, like this, we are not going to have a happenstance culture, but we're creating the conditions for more and varied people to thrive, which means we will be a higher performing organization because when you create the conditions for more people to thrive, you get greater excellence.
1: And just when you walk through the door, you're obviously a woman. A lot of this stemmed from the Susan Fowler letter in February. And how did you find it?
2: Yeah. So I, a word that has been described in the past is that people found like toxic parts of the culture. I haven't seen any, none. And I, and I have looked hard. I don't know if that's because the aspects of the culture have already been addressed if people hide those aspects when I'm around, but I'm around a lot. Now that doesn't mean I don't believe every single word of what was written in, in what you read in the beginning. And I think it's a day-to-day to c- commitment to make sure like we have, we have an obligation to create an awesome culture. I'm delighted to be of service to Leanne in any way I can. But as a woman, as a person who loves competition, as a person that just thrives on organizational excellence, I only saw and only feel optimism. And just I'm crazy optimistic though, so that should be the bias. <laughs> like crazy, <laughs> maybe criminally.
1: <laughs> so what are the stakes? Can a culture kill a company like this?
2: Well, a culture so can a culture kill a company? Sure. And I think Peter Drucker might have been the person that famously said that culture eats strategy. I can't ever remember which meal it was for, for breakfast, uh, for lunch. lunch, yeah. Nice yeah. Lunch. Culture can kill a company full stop. And I have seen and been a part of many, many cultural transformations, including at Harvard, which. Yeah, which I, we should talk about. Yeah. yeah that's really but interesting. and that institution was born before our country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, and it's had like some serious cultural issues and that many people thought maybe couldn't change. And they can uh, and did.
1: So what did you do there?
2: So we had, on the business school side, what we learned were persistent gaps between men and women, but then also between U.S. citizens and international students. And there were two gaps that we became aware of that were just heartbreaking, a performance gap and a satisfaction gap. So men had higher grades than women, as an example, and men had higher self-reported satisfaction than women. Wow. Uh, Which is, like, super devastating to learn. And
1: how long had that been the case?
2: So when we learned about it, we found out that it had been persistent for probably decades. Decades? Yeah. It had probably been a part of—it at least felt from the oral histories that I heard that it was always a part of HBS. Indeed, it was so systemic that people had a lot of theories for why it was always that way. So we have a, an environment where it's a forced curve at HBS. So the Which means what? Only the top percentage get the highest marks and the bottom percentage get what we call a three, but what other people might consider a failing. I, I found out one deep-seated theory was, or hypothesis it turns out, was that women are more collaborative than men. And so they're not as...
1: What co- is that code for?
2: They don't, they didn't want the top grades as much.
1: That sounds like real familiar... I was reading a little memo from a Google employee recently.
2: Yeah. So when I saw the data and heard the oral histories, and then was put in a position where I could do something about it, it didn't sound right to me. But So we just tried a bunch of different things and were able to close the satisfaction and the performance gap almost entirely in year one. Absolutely entirely in year two, and it's so stay closed. quite
1: easy things. Well, I don't know if they're easy, Not, but yeah, so <laughs> <'cause> straightforward. <laughs> well, no, so the-
2: so here's the, the what I have learned is that it's understanding a really clear diagnosis of what's really getting in the way. Then you can do really clever prescriptions. But if you don't have a, a super clear diagnosis of what's really getting in the way, like the root cause, the root cause, the root cause, then prescriptions will look like they didn't work and people are like, oh, we've tried that before. Well, we didn't actually try it in a tailored enough way. So we put in place um, uh, a bunch of different things that...
1: Can you give an example of like that? Yeah.
2: One is that we made discussable the topic of self-reported satisfaction in grades. What do you mean? So the students didn't know year to year that men and women had differential grades. So we presented the data to the students.
1: And so this was like the kind of top secret information?
2: Well, I just think it was never collated in this way. You know, we were collating on the forced curve, but weren't necessarily looking at it by gender, which makes our organization, much like many organizations, when they're organizations rarely cut data by gender unless they have to, rarely cut gender by race unless they have to. It's just not what organizations do. And so we were like that as well. And then when we did, we made it discussable with the students. And then I was later given the task of doing it with the faculty, did the same thing, make it discussable. So what's, our, what's a good explicit one? I can give you a good explicit one on the for the faculty, which we okay. had exactly the same thing, which is that we found that when, if you were struggling in the classroom, we had a great blanket prescription, we would videotape you. And then you could watch your struggle in the privacy of your own home and learn from it. You have the look on your face that this wouldn't be the way that you would get better. So
1: I, as a faculty member, I'm not a good teacher, for yeah. example. And So, so they, you would just w- w- torture yourself by watching how bad well, you are. Well, it's
2: interesting. So those who found it to be torturous got worse as a result of the video. Those who, who found it as, I'm on TV, got better <laughs> as a result. <laughs> so the lovely blanket prescription only worked for some people and not others. So it was that light level of root cause analysis to find out what are the real obstacles. So for people that are like you, who would find it torturous if I read into you, look on your face, it's not that the video is not helpful, but maybe I'll watch the video for you. And then I'll tell you the four things you do that are amazing and the one or two things that if you make a small shift will make a big difference. Yeah. It's things like that. So in that way, it's straightforward. If you have the open mind and the courage to get to the root cause, and I really mean the open mind, like just getting rid of all preconceived notions, understanding that whatever obstacle you come up with, you can overcome. Right. If you get down to the specific diagnosis, I've I've literally never seen a diagnosis that we can't come up with a clever prescription for in any organization. You can imagine that here, I'm like, well, we have all of these... Challenges. I know how to, I have seen every single one of them solved before. Right. The novelty of the context is both hyper growth and what you read, which I think you said it was from February of this yeah. year. I got here and I read that and then all of the news clippings. And so I thought I was going to come into an environment that is just great, like all this stuff going on. And then I didn't see those when I got here. And so that was surprising to me. And then I realized everything that I've read since February is an excavation of the past. So each new thing was another thing that happened a year ago, two years ago. So there's been like a rapid-fire succession of things. But every one of them predates February. So the, the novelty of the context is that usually things get surfaced as they happen. Here it was almost like everything was pent up, And then it got put out. So it looked like all of these things are currently going on. No, they had gone on, but because of the severity with which the organization took them, we hired the Holder team. Like all of these things were done so that in June, they gave a report, which I think they did a magnificent job with the report. I also think many other companies would have come in and written a similarly serious report. And the company is taking action on every one of them. The board of directors unanimously approved it. Leanne is leading the efforts of systematically going after every one of these things. So that's almost like a gift. You come in. The past has been excavated as well as a super professional firm can do. And everyone wants it to get better. Every single person. Like every single one of the 15,000 people is leaning in, um, wanting to get better, and wants just some guidance on on how to best do it
1: has kind of turnover played a part in that because there are obviously at the top there's been tons of turnover and travis left was almost two months ago and in the weeks leading up to that and after it seems a lot of his closest um lieutenants for lack of a better word have also left i mean has that trickled down to the organization as well i mean were it, have you seen a lot of turnover and would that have helped kind of clear out a lot of these things that had built up over the years
2: so um i think that turnover is definite as i understand it is um higher than it has been historically um uh and i i think that you know the separation of the company from some employees some of that i think was you know quite necessary and then some of it is um you know We're sad to see the people go like, I mean, I think we have both parts of it. What I can tell you is of the people that are remaining, it does not feel to me like we have any bad apples. So the employees we have, not only are they plenty good enough for this organization to live up to its potential, they're like above that, but they're still first time managers. They're still not used to working in teams. They still don't have a clear and comprehensive understanding of the strategy, but these are all things we can do.
1: Have you had much pushback?
2: Not a single bit.
1: None. None. But can you give me an example of things that are happening here now that weren't before in terms of new things, oh, yeah. new, new mechanisms or practices?
2: Yeah, so um, we, uh, one of the uh, training sessions I gave was on how to give uh, feedback and how to set goals. So you'd think, well, golly. I mean, every organization. That sounds quite
1: basic. It sounds
2: quite basic, right?
1: And, uh, maybe it's not, but uh, yeah, I mean.
2: Yeah. However, in my hands, <laughs> you will see that the way in which you give feedback—if you give feedback as a commitment to having somebody improve, as opposed to an evaluative—it can be a competitive advantage um, for an organization. If you set goals in a way that make me be seen, make me feel energized to work harder, like goals can unleash the potential of people feedback can help be an improvement mechanism. So we're doing, we're taking what looks like basic things, but we're not training the basics. We're actually training at a super high level for it. So, so
1: it's kind of infusing the place with clarity of purpose. And... Yes.
2: And so, but putting purpose in everything like just, just Fong who we did today with lunch, but doing it for the basics. Um, cause you know, you could say every one of our challenges is basic. Like, um, so we're teaching people how to work effectively in teams. And that also helps us to understand diversity. So the, thing, the awesome thing if you learn how to work in teams is that you'll realize that people naturally acclimate to what they have in common. The reason that diversity is so powerful and so needed in organizations is that it's what we have not in common that helps us make better decisions. So if, if you and I are very common, then maybe I don't need you to make my make the decision because but if i have a diverse if i have people with unique information and that's what diversity brings us our unique context different perspectives and i learn how to harness that oh my gosh i'm going to make decisions that are better and faster so we're putting in place things that are having leading to higher quality decisions faster decisions and i can see your question is how do you know there's less do-overs so this is an organization that would make a decision but then might re-legislate the decision and re-legislate. So it would make a decision rather quickly. But if you looked at the re-legislation, well, now we have, so as an example, our leadership team, we have the entire organization represented there. So it's like it's collectively exhaustive. We don't have to re-legislate any decisions. So we're making decisions at as I understand it, the fastest rate in the company's history, right. and at a much higher quality because we have the expertise of all of the various people, um, you know, uh, participating in it.
1: But you, and you mentioned diversity, but uh, and I don't have the Uber diversity report to hand, but I don't uh, from memory. It's not that much different from most of the other big tech companies here, in that in that it is not that diverse.
2: And that's our baseline. And so I know, so my goal in the world is to set the conditions for individuals and organizations to thrive. So consider that the before.
1: Right. Is there a goal for the after?
2: Uh, The goal for the after is for the organization to reach its greatest potential. I have found... there's
1: no kind of red lines we need to have this, you know, X percent women or African-American or Latino, et cetera.
2: Uh, I... No, not that I'm aware of. um, But I will say that every organization that I've been a part of that achieves excellence has magnificent diversity. It's almost tautological, like, you perform better when you have more perspectives and more points of view. So with certainty, as we thrive to perform better, we will naturally have increasing diversity. So I find these two things hand in hand. You know, which one do you put first? Do you put diversity first and then excellence will follow or do you put excellence first and diversity will follow i find that reasonable people can disagree about what you do it but for sure excellence comes with diversity
1: and how do you harness the aggression of this place
2: yeah so it's uh, because you know,
1: it's a kind of famous for that aggressive approach to yeah. obviously very a great diff- question yeah very entrenched interest that was what was required but yeah. obviously it bled into the organization in a lot of unhelpful ways how do you yeah so deal with
2: that? Um, if I, i'm going to give you a parallel first and then i'm going to answer regression if i take and i don't know if you've ever had performance anxiety in your life but performance anxiety is almost a good kind of anxiety because it makes you work harder but there are also there are lots of bad kinds of anxiety so you want the good anxiety and not the bad anxiety i think the same thing is true for regression so on the one hand like the whole concept of Uber. Wow, did you have to be aggressive because otherwise like there were entrenched taxis. Like if you weren't aggressive, we were still going to have the same experiences with taxis which I wasn't very satisfied with. Um and certainly wouldn't have helped my mother um in her in her issue. So that's the good type of aggression which is the you know, I'm going to like I'm going to be fierce and I'm not going to take you know, your first no. I'm you know, my saying has always been, when someone says no to me, I simply hear not yet. Now, I mean that all along the good kind of aggression. Yeah, and Uber sometimes
1: to- heard not, maybe not yet, or well, yeah. I hear your no, but I'm going to do something underhanded around. Yeah,
2: world. and so that's the bad kind. So what we, but then it's not an aggression problem; it's an underhanded problem, right? So, so the if it's the same way that I want to keep the performance anxiety, but I want all the bad kinds. If the part of aggression and I play I've played competitive sports my whole life and so and many people would say that's an aggressive environment. Where do you I, play? Uh, I played college basketball. Uh,
1: really? I love that. Yeah. Ba- oh, Jesus
2: so, I mean, fun. I played before you had to be a really good player to play college <laughs> basketball. Um, so, but I I do get to say I was co-captain of my college basketball team. Oh, really um, cool. But it, again, it was before players are like they are today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Genetically engineered. Yeah, yeah. No, I
2: it. was, uh, well, as you can tell, not. Um, <laughs> so I want to keep that wonderful part of fierceness. And then I want to get rid of... if any underhanded any part that there's a anything that like um is too close to the line or goes over the line we of course have to get rid of that like of course just like the bad anxiety but it's super important that we not lose our dna because we have worked on behalf of riders and on behalf of drivers and we have to keep doing that um but do it in a in an as noble way as possible um so I don't know if that makes sense, but yep. we have to keep the high performance in the culture, um, but have it all rowing in a really worthy, noble direction.
1: So you don't have a problem stepping on toes. Cause it sounds like that's what you did, for example, at, uh, Harvard. I think that that was, you had a bit of pushback there, didn't you? Well,
2: I, so in that kind of pushback, yeah, I don't think many people are going to give you permission to do things very, very differently unless you come from a crisis. So if you come from a crisis um, and the Holder report, like that kind of gives you license. At HBS, we were arguably the top or one of the top business schools. And we also thought that we should change. That's much harder to do. You're not going to get permission to do that. Here, Holder gave us a, I mean, began with the blog and then we had license to change. So when I say I have an experience to push back here, I think it's because we already had the catalyst change. the problem for change. is in front of everybody's face. Yes. Desk. Yeah. Whereas at Harvard, why change anything? Like you're putting the brand at risk.
1: And so was that harder than what you're looking it's at It's a here?
2: different challenge. You know, certainly when everyone's leaning in, like they are here, you have the benefit of everyone wanting to row in the same direction. But that comes from a crisis. <laughs> so yeah. is it easier to overcome a crisis? I think they're just different challenges.
1: Right.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to
1: open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Report, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: The boardroom upheaval and the issues amongst the investors has been great sport for journalists to kind of watch and write about. And it's, you know, it's, it's amazing viewing (laughs) to see one of the biggest investors sue its prized investment.
2: That is a first for me.
1: Yeah. How does that inside these walls, does that percolate down all the way? And is that, I mean, how destructive is that?
2: I have to imagine that that's a distraction for everyone. I mean, I don't know when the last time you picked up a newspaper and felt like, you were in board meetings like you felt like you understand i don't i don't ever remember reading about board dynamics on every company now maybe it's because i'm you know i have a red car now so i'm noticing red cars but i just i don't think that it's been board dynamics have ever been this present in the media so as human beings of course we're all distracted by it and i think i can speak for all of us that we look forward to the day when we're not distracted by it and our job is to understand that it's things that are completely beyond our control. There's no company in the world that can control a board, nor should it try to. Or, it, But wow, wow, do we want it to no longer be a distraction.
1: Do you have performance anxiety about this job? Because Uber has become the emblem for everything that's wrong with the tech industry. And everybody's looking to see if this $70 billion yeah. wonder company is going to go down the tubes or so that's not.
2: What that's um one of the reasons that it attracted me to it is that i think that i can be very helpful and i do think if the company's at an inflection point you can imagine if we hadn't reacted as swiftly and as seriously in february like there were a lot of things that could have happened that could have sent the organization quite south instead the organization has shown like unbelievable desire to change in fact the rate of change that i have observed is quite unlike any other organization i've seen um, how do you mean well we went from having a ceo to having a leadership team where we all collectively said we do not want tiebreaker votes because Wait, it, what do you mean so we have a leadership team an executive leadership team that's leading the company now until we have our next ceo and all oh, right
1: cuz there's no ceo or coo or president yeah. etc
2: so we're going uh, so, so how the, big
1: is that leadership team
2: It's 16 people. And so talk about unorthodox.
1: I was going to say, so you have this giant company being run by 16 people.
2: Yeah, but here's the beautiful thing about it. One, it's collectively exhaustive. So there is never a decision maker that's not in the room. So we meet a couple times a week. We never have to go to anyone outside of the room. We have every decision maker there. So that's an unbelievable. So take that from we used to operate in silos. And then if something was cross-functional, You make a decision here and then you go over to there and the other thing is we really have a need to work as teams what an awesome thing to have the team and by saying there's no tiebreaker vote which i which is the part that makes people the most nervous and it's the part that i think is the most courageous and the most awesome we stay in the room until we work it out now we don't go to consensus because i think consensus would be a problem but until we and i think Uh, Jeff Bezos says this famously: "Where we disagree and commit, but you have to be super rigorous about going
1: through things." So we don't. In other words, everything, every decision has to be unanimous. Then?
2: No, no, no. Definitely not unanimous. It's you had a chance to offer your voice, and then you can disagree and commit to the decision. And this isn't, again, not a new novel challenge. Right. Jeff Bezos has talked about this. Right,
1: so this is just majority votes, basically. Not
2: even majority. It's probably the people closest to the decision have the obligation to hear everyone else, and then we will come up with a decision that everyone can commit to. But for sure, 16 people, 8 people, 4 people, you'll never have consensus. It's yeah. why we companies are run by CEOs. So you can either have one person or a team of people. The thing I'm enormously proud of the organization for doing is putting a team in place and having the team run it and we haven't slowed down a single decision. Now, I wouldn't do this forever.
1: I was going to say, have you in all of your company doctor years, have you ever seen a situation like this?
2: No. I've seen co-CEOs, but that I've...
1: that always works real well. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: but I've also never seen a company that experienced this amount of growth. Was filled with all awesome people, but had was so in need of cross-functional team. So this has been, I think, incredible. So this leadership team will be in place when the CEO comes. Versus, if we had an interim CEO in place, we wouldn't have learned the team dynamics. And I have to tell you, the uh, leadership team loves it. Like they really want to weigh in on each other, and we need to. Like you make better decisions if the magnificent people that are running the businesses and ride sharing also know deeply what's going on in tech, also know what deeply what's going on in the functions. Like it's I think I could tell you a story, would you be like, why isn't every company run that way? And then we'll get to because it becomes it can at some point become distracting for sixteen people to all have to weigh in. But now we're only on the really positive returns to it because we're Learning how to function in teams. And
1: these are operational decisions. These aren't kind of strategic, oh, are we going to take money from SoftBank decisions?
2: Um, well, those kinds of decisions are, are made with the board. The board so, right. um, not, so that decision we wouldn't, uh, we're not doing. But any of the other decisions that would be made uh, independent of the board, we're doing all of those.
1: Right. And the company hasn't slowed down.
2: Uh, if anything, it's sped up
1: in terms of revenue growth customer growth oh
2: so that so i mean there are trajectories of like we were growing faster when we were smaller of course now we're growing slower but if you look at six months ago and now is our like what's the quality of our decision making it by definition has to be better because more people are weighing in
1: on it i think those are all my questions is there anything else we should be keeping in mind
2: so can i ask you a question sure um why are you doing a podcast about uber
1: because partly for the reasons we spoke about earlier but it is one of the most interesting and disruptive companies and everybody knows it and i think the problems here tapped into something that a lot of people related to um so they want to see how how it turns out and i think also it's a very it's the narrative of a kind of you know bro culture a bunch of white guys high-fiving and doing push-ups around an office while everybody else is kind of feeling marginalized that is in terms of like a hollywood story yeah it's it's an interesting story and it's a it's a story it's kind of like you know the the classroom bully and then you know getting his comeuppance and what happens next
2: i uh i i I look forward to our being worthy of your uh, <laughs> worthy of your, uh, shining a light on it and your interest. And um, uh, I haven't seen anyone doing push-ups, although I could use more push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can have a little committee of push-ups. <laughs>
1: thank you very much. Oh, a total time. pleasure.
2: Thank you. It. I thank really you. appreciate it. Cheers.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Frances for sitting down to chat. I wish her luck in her endeavor. She's got a very big mountain to climb there. Um, but you know it's not hard? Going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a rating and review. it uh, take you like a minute. So please, just uh, do it for me. it be a great help. As always, you can also find me every weekend in the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk, and on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. Until next week, take it easy. Bye-bye.